Good morning. The reading this morning comes from Romans 5, 12 to 14 and 18 to 21. And it's from the message translation. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone, but the extent of this disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death. And that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life. A life that goes on and on and on. World without end. Wonderful. Thank you very much for reading that for us, Peter. And why don't you just uh, give Peter a right of a hand for sharing there. Hey, I'm Nick Harris, and it's just great to be here with you today. Um, if you don't know me, I'm married. My wife is Kat. She was singing at this point just earlier. I have two stunning daughters, a five-year-old who's probably sitting somewhere in this room, and a two-year-old who's been taken care of in children's ministry. And I also have a dog, that's my first baby, my fur baby. Uh, she is incredibly healthy, but we went to the vet the other day, and we've been told she's officially in her old age. So we're starting to emotionally prepare ourselves for that transition in life. Hey, just before I begin, I, I really just want to thank um, Pastor Pete for giving me this opportunity to study Scripture and to stand up here and to just share some thoughts with you uh, as our church. And I guess if you've been with us for a while now, you'll know that as a church we've been camped in the book of... Good. So we've been doing this for a few months, and, and one of the things we've been encouraged to do as, as a group is to read this book on repeat at home. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have or have not done that, because that's just not the way I roll. But if you have been reading along for the last little bit, uh, you'll be aware that as Paul's working, he's got these thematic chunks in this letter that he's writing. In the first few chapters, uh, what Paul does is he juxtaposes God's holiness with the deadliness of sin. In the three chapters we've most recently been in, Paul's been exploring God's grace, justification, and salvation. Later on, Paul has been discussing God's power and sovereignty, and then he ends with just a few personal thoughts. So today, the passage, or the chunk of the passage that Peter read for us, uh, that's at the end of chapter 5. And it's at the end of a segment of thought that Paul's been working on for quite some time. He's been systematically arguing this point God's grace is sufficient, that salvation comes through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith alone. 
There's, there's no additions. There's no commas or semicolons. There's no laws or, or behaviors. There's no cultural expectations. It's the power of Jesus and faith that saves. And so as we enter into this last part of chapter 5 today together... What Paul is doing is is reinforcing an idea that I hope you sort of see is consistent from Brian's message, Pete's message, Sarah's message. And now, as I bring this from Scripture, the last part where Paul is really pushing this idea forward. And so I want us just to work through a couple of the key ideas as we just try to really walk away with what Paul is trying to land for his intended audience. And it's fascinating. He thinks he's writing to a group thousands of years ago in Rome. And yet scripture is one of those incredible things that thousands of years on still remains relevant, still speaks to us today. And so as we sit under this, this concept, something that we're all probably really familiar with, the question to ask ourselves is, so, so what does this mean right now in Perth for me? So Paul, he says this, he says, you know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma that we're in. First sin, then death. And no one is exempt from either sin or death. Not exactly an inspiring start, is it? And I've been thinking about Paul's argument regarding Adam's sin, and it's just been in my head for a few weeks now because there's something uh, that's a little bit uncomfortable with me. And I was having lunch on Friday, it was a late lunch, and I bumped into one of my friends, and he just sort of said to me, hey, what are you talking about on Sunday? And as we began toing and froing, we began to discuss some ideas And one of the things he reminded me of was that Scripture paints creation and humanity as on a journey. Scripture paints humanity uh, as on a journey between a garden with a tree, which is in Genesis, and a holy city with a tree, which is in Revelation. From God's first creation to the new creation that God has promised to bring forward for us, humanity is on this journey. The problem with this is at the very start of our journey we set off in a direction that won't get us to our desired destination. And I think we all know that the reason this journey takes this sort of detour isn't because Adam suddenly swore at Eve. It's not because Eve suddenly got angry with Adam for something that he did. It's not that Adam started looking lustfully at something. No, no, no. The journey is sidetracked because a deliberate choice was made to eat a piece of fruit that ultimately would make Adam and Eve like God. And the tragedy behind this is not the eating of the fruit. The tragedy, as always, is the heart behind their action. If you become like God, if you're like God, do you need God? Not so much. You can replace God with yourself because you're self-sufficient. And this is the original sin, the rejection of God. To sin is to miss the mark, to miss where God is calling us to be with Him. So there are two trees, and because of what happens in the first garden with the first tree, the direction we take towards the second tree is altered and incorrect, as you can see by my incredible artwork behind us. Uh, You can be very thankful that when it comes to the art teachers at Kerry Baptist College, I am not one of them. No one takes me into the arts department or the media department. I don't go anywhere near that. But this really is high-quality Harris artwork. If you want to buy it, I'm selling it for $10,000. Each, and I've got a few graphics. By the way, Pete, that's coming out of the offering, right? Because, Anyway, um, this idea that what happens in the garden doesn't sit very comfortably with me. I don't like the idea that something negative that occurred thousands of years ago is going to somehow shape my life or or the life of my children and their, their destinies. And I've been reflecting on this discomfort that I have within me and 
And part of it's just my Western individualistic upbringing. And part of it's just realizing too that the way I naturally think is entirely disconnected from a biblical worldview. So I've been asking myself, well, if this is the way things work, that something happens many years ago and it's impacted through us, how do we explain it? How does that work? And one of the things I love to do when I'm reading scripture is to try to put myself in the story. I don't know if you do that. Um, I used to be a history teacher and was a history teacher. We, we'd have these um, documents we'd get students to look at. There'd be cartoons or there'd be speeches or letters, and students always struggle to make meaning from them. And so one of the things I say to my students is you need to pretend that you're a detective, a Hercule Poirot, a Sherlock Holmes. You need to uh, step into it and try solve the crime to figure out the message, the idea that's been presented. And when I read scripture, I take very much a similar approach and I step into scripture and I try to figure out what on earth is going on here and, and, and who am I in this audience? Or which character could I be? Or what if I was many of these different characters? And so when I think of Genesis and the opening accounts, and I've been thinking about how uncomfortable I am with this idea about Adam's mistake affecting absolutely everyone, including myself and my children, I begin to ask myself, so what if I was Adam? What if I was there at the beginning? And last week we sort of all said, yeah, we think we're good people, and Sarah proved by a raise of hands that we're all liars, adulterers, and thieves. I think I'm a good person. I don't think I'm any of that stuff. And yet I know that if I was in the garden, if I just think about the way I've lived my life, I know I would have done the exact same thing Adam did. In fact, when I think about my life, I know I've done that time and time again. And I definitely won't ask you to raise your hands. But if we're all honest with ourselves and we get right down to the root of what this question means, I think we can all say that at some point in our lives, from the point of birth to where we are sitting right now, at some point when we've had to weigh up a decision about what I want versus what maybe God would want, at some point we've chosen self over what we think God would have chosen. Perhaps because we didn't even think for a moment that God might be part of that situation or decision. But at some point we'd all have to raise our hands to that. It's not because we're bad people. We're just descendants of Adam and we've inherited character traits from Adam in the same way that we inherit character traits from our gene pool. So, for example, uh, if you know my mother, who's in this audience, you take one look at her, you take one look at me, we're related. That's really, really easy. If you know my father, you take one look at him, you take one look at me, and maybe you can put two and two together. I'm way more handsome than he is. His proof is in the pictures when we're the same age, definitely. But... One of the privileges I've had is that over the years, I've sat under his teaching across many different countries. And what I realize is when, when Dad gets up to preach, he always begins with, well, hi and welcome. And many years ago, I was writing my first sermon, and as I was writing my first sermon, I had to figure out how do I start to speak to a group of people, and I wrote down, well, hi and welcome. Whoa, where did that come from? Oh, I'd been immersed in something for a period of time, and I began to reflect the people that I'd been around. So whether it's by genetic disposition or immersion with people, the character traits of our family follow us. And because Adam rejected God, we set off in the wrong direction. We move in a direction that is missing where God is. And part of it is just the way traits are inherited by people. But part of it is because, you know what? We would have done the exact same thing had we been there at the time. This is depressing. So let's move on. 
You get to verse 18 and Paul is starting to shift and he says, just as one person did it wrong and got us all into trouble with sin and death, that's a pretty big consequence, he says, another person did it right and got us out of it. I was talking to my friend at lunch and he put it this way, God saw that we were missing the mark so he sent Jesus to redirect our path. Jesus came and he lived and he died on a cross. He was buried, he defeated death, and he rose from the grave. And now the tomb is empty, which is really important to recognize. That's an empty tomb. If it wasn't an empty tomb, we'd all be wasting our time right now. Jesus came, he lived, he rose again. The tomb is empty, which changes absolutely everything. And this is a gift. And I think that every single person in this room has been around the sun enough times to know that a gift costs the gift giver. They're not free. In fact, if you're, if you're like me and you, you're married to someone who is a gift giver, you probably have a section in your budget titled gifts. And the reason you have that section in your budget is because you're trying to curb the generosity of your partner. If you want to know how it's going for me, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because Kat ignores the numbers or because she decides she can give foods and then she calls out something from our grocery account, which is also overdrawn. Or because she decides that, hey, Nick's free, he can go help someone with his labor. Or she decides to babysit someone else's kids, babysit someone else's kids. And then she says, hey, Nick, you stay at home with our kids and hear all the chores. I have real first world problems. And I am so incredibly grateful for that. This is the point. When you buy someone a gift, the gift costs the gift giver. When a child uh, ages up, we celebrate with them because they're slightly taller and their physical and mental faculties have developed. And we go, hey, for making it another 365 days, here's something we're going to celebrate. When an adult gets to that point, we go, hey, look, don't worry. You're slightly fatter, slightly grayer, and gee, you don't know where your keys are half the time, but you made it. Have a gift as a pick-me-up. But the way it works is the person giving the gift has spent the money, the thought, the effort, the time on giving the gift. The person receiving the gift, all they have to do is say, thank you and open it. The gift costs the giver, the receiver just has to take it in. Just as one person sent us in a direction that was missing relationship with God, Jesus, one person fully human and fully God, entered the world so that we might have a relationship today and more fully into the future. It's the redirecting of our lives, and it's got, got nothing to do with our ability. There's nothing more than our ability to just accept the gift of what Jesus did at the cross. Consequence of sin is death, to no longer walk with the Lord. Consequence of the gift of salvation at the cross is to journey with God today and forevermore. Amen, indeed. See, Paul's been arguing this case as he's been writing to this group of people in Rome. And he says in, in verse 14, Adam, who got us into trouble, he points to the one who will get us out of it. I love that. I love it. You've got Adam paralleled with Jesus. And sometimes when you want to understand something better, you, you tr try to compare two things that are similar but slightly different. So if you look at the pictures that are about to come up here, you've got two dogs. One looks very much like my dog when she was a puppy. Not so much anymore. But when you look at these dogs, you can see similarities. They're both dogs, right? They've got legs and eyes and fur. They're dogs. 
But when you start to hone in on the images, you can see that they're slightly different. One dog is black. Uh, one dog has a slightly rounder snout and forehead. One dog's uh, fur is shorter, and you can see the whiskers coming out the side of the nose and the eyebrows. The other dog is this whitish-brown color. You can see that the eyes really contrast. The fur looks softer, and it's curly, and it's got a pigmentation in its nose. Very similar, but you can see the differences between the two. In comparing Adam with Christ, Paul has chosen two human representatives. He could have chosen any representatives. He could have chosen Abraham. He chooses Abraham, then he's the founder, the forefather of the Israelite. Oh, that's one nation. He could have chosen Moses to, to represent salvation, the person that brought the Jews out. Of, oh, that's one nation again. So he chooses Adam, the father of all people. He goes back to the beginning. He goes, where do things originate? Well, it's God who creates, and humanity is made in God's image, and Adam is the father of humanity. And he goes, all right, that's the problem. Adam is a father for rejecting me. All of humanity inherits the consequences, the trait of pushing God to the side. But Jesus is both fully God, and he's fully human, and he doesn't come to earth to free or lead one people. I mean, that's half the problem. The whole time Jesus is walking around, everyone's saying, hey, is it time you're going to free us from the oppression of the Romans? He's kind of like, well, actually, that's not why I'm here. Because Jesus is so much bigger. His call is to be a gift to all humanity. And his power is that he can restore the wrongs of the man that went before because he is the creator. He is part of the triune God. And so when Jesus defeats death, he redirects all of humanity back into relationship with God. In the message translation, Paul is just, I just love the way Eugene Peterson captures Paul's arguments. Listen to the words. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in trouble, another person did it right, got us out. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. Life. One man said no to God. The other man said yes to God. Laws and sin, it produces lawbreakers, but sin doesn't have a chance against the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life. Life that goes on and on and on, world without end. It's what we created for, a life that goes for eternity with God. Sin ends that. Grace begins what we were supposed to be doing in the first instance. This picture here, God's aggressive forgiveness, sin versus grace, hands down. Grace has got this. God putting everything together through who? Through not me, through not you, through the Messiah, the only one who can actually restore us back into right relationship. Yes, thank you. I don't know, this is really good news, but sometimes this does become a stumbling block. Actually, it becomes a massive stumbling block for all of us. Because there seems to be something hardwired within humanity, humanity that makes us want to earn our salvation. There seems to be a natural skepticism built within us that questions God's generous gifts. A tendency to expect that God wants something back in return for the gift of his son. You know that's true because you know that at some point you've done something and you've gone, ah, hang it. God's going to be disappointed because I thought that or I did that or 
I know it's true because I've done years of ministry with young people. And do you know what? Often what has stopped people from following Jesus is because they've come to the point that they've realized that there's a disconnect with their behavior and what the church expects of them. I didn't expect that of them. Paul didn't expect that of them. Ah, there's a skepticism, this inbuilt wiring that somehow tries to make the equation of salvation this gift of grace plus good behavior equals salvation. There's something within us that tries to work that Uh, that way but Paul he says if you accept the gift of Jesus if you accept Jesus's life if you accept Jesus's death if you accept his resurrection plus nothing nothing and I know that there's people who are sitting and going no you mean no no plus nothing equals you have to receive the gift plus nothing equals salvation I was um, I'm part of the youth team and we uh, hang out on Friday nights and we do ministry together and the last sermon of last term, uh, there was someone preaching and the passage was that famous one where Jesus uttered the words, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. person spoke for about 20 minutes, we then broke off into discussion groups. I lead a group with uh, mostly year 12s and a couple of older lads. And so we, we got together and we're kicking these ideas around for roughly half an hour. And as we're going through it, we, we considered what Jesus meant in his declaration, I am the way. And, and we considered the many ways people might try to say that we should live. We considered what Jesus meant, I am the truth. And we discussed the many truths in society, the truths of our friends, the truths of our families, the truths that we tell ourselves, and we contrasted that with the truth of Jesus. And we looked at I am the life, and we explored what Jesus meant by life. And it was one of those discussions where, as the leader, I sort of thought, oh, this feels good, because it felt like at the very end that we were in unison. It actually felt like we were in unison as a group with the conclusion that ultimately uh, the implications of Jesus' word is that it is Jesus. You accept his truth, nothing else matters, and then you find your way into salvation, into eternity, into right relationship with him. I'm like, yeah, nailed it. And one of the year 12s could have like, we don't do a hand raising, but she kind of raised a hand and she goes, I get it. I get that Jesus is the answer. But there's got to be more. I get to be the follower of Jesus. You have to believe in him and what he did. But there has to be more. And I thought, oh, 20-minute sermon, 30-minute conversation. I guess I'm not as intuitive as I thought. I've missed this group entirely. She's a really bright girl. So it definitely has been missing the group. So I said, well, what, what do you mean there has to be more? And she, she looks at me and she goes, what about Christian morals? What about Christian values? What about Christian behaviors? You know, for 17 and 18-year-olds who are following Jesus, the question of how to behave is really, really evident. If you're a Christian, what is appropriate to watch or not to watch? Apparently, your faith somehow dictates the type of bathers you should wear at the beach. And we're coming into summer, and I don't see many bathers with crosses on them, so there's something else that they're thinking about. If you're a Christian, apparently your faith is supposed to somehow shape the venues that you associate and the people that you'll be around. And this is a temptation that I... No, this is not the temptation of our young people. This is the temptation of everyone in the room to take the formula and go grace plus good behavior equals salvation. 
And we, we do this so often in the way that we, we see ourselves in the light of the Lord. We do it sometimes when we share our faith and testimony with other people. We slip into because they direct questions in that way. A friend of mine um, was hanging out with their neighbours and their neighbourhood is just a wonderful portrait of what uh, West Australian society is becoming like. And so they're having this meal and in this group there's some Maoris, there's some Italians, there's some, uh, nat- they all naturalised Australians, there's some Indians. And then there's people who are agnostic, people who are Catholic, people who are Muslim, people who are Sikh. And there was my friend who was Christian. And they're all talking about their beliefs and I love that they're all talking about the beliefs and it's just a peaceful conversation over food. So this is like neighbourhood 101, what it's supposed to be like. Love it. And as they're talking about this, uh, one person was talking about their experience of Islam and Egypt and the Middle East and how they're totally different. And then my friend starts talking about their Christian faith and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And someone goes, that is very different to the Christianity I've seen or experienced in my life. I wasn't in the room, but my friend says, then someone pipes up and says, yes, I think it is our cultural context that shapes our religions. And whilst that might be a wonderful observation, it is also one that is entirely challenging. Everyone's faith is lived out within a cultural context. And our context will change what we focus on. So we have Paul, and he's writing in a context to the Christians of Rome, and one of the issues he's returning to time and time again is a tendency to add something onto grace. For the Jews, there's just a millennia of laws that they've been working through. For us, there's our sense of inadequacy. For us, there's sometimes a notion that there is correct Christian behaviors. And because of these things, people have been bombarded out of relationship with Jesus. Paul wrote to a group of people and they're asking the question, what is required to be saved? And they're questioning their traditions and they're wrestling with their cultural expectations. And it's within this context that Paul says, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery that life makes in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant gift of Jesus Christ? This grand setting of everything right that comes through one man. We're in the exact same situation today. There are many things that we can mistakenly put in front of our faith to the detriment of ourselves and others. Two weeks ago, Pastor Pete finished with the question of what are you fully persuaded and how does this change things? Oh, Paul was fully persuaded. Paul was fully persuaded. He said, one man said yes to God and put the many in the right. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, and he invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. You see, it is except Jesus, his life, his death on the cross, his burial, and the empty tomb because he defeated death. If you accept that gift, don't add a plus. Accept that gift and walk into life now and forever. When you accept that gift now and forever, it changes you here. It changes your family. It changes the way you carry yourself in all contexts. But it begins not with rules. It begins with the gift and your response to it.
I'm going to pray in a second. And as we pray, this is a gift that you've never received. I want to encourage you just to, to open your arms to the wildly extravagant gift of Jesus. And then as you try to figure out what on earth it means, don't worry about rules. Don't worry about any expectations. Just have fun knowing that you've met your Creator who's going to journey with you through everything. It could be that right now you're sitting here and, and because you've come to figure out right from wrong, you've put some barriers before your relationship with Christ and you're here this morning because it's Sunday and that's what you do. Well, do you know what? God longs just to know you and maybe today's the day that you just want to say, God, I accept that gift again. I've been around the sun. Thank you that you gave that gift. I accept it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. And uh, I'd love to chat to you after the service or with that pastoral eldership team this talk. Father, I thank you that you created and that when you saw that we were moving in the wrong direction, that you stepped in, that you created a party that none of us expected and that you sent your son, Jesus. I thank you that though Jesus could have chosen so many different ways to live, he chose your way. He did what we cannot do. He obeyed. I thank you, Father, that Jesus is the one who obeys. And Jesus is the one who goes to the cross. The gift you give. Thank you that he defeats death on our behalf. And that in doing so, Father, I thank you that you have redirected us towards you. Lord, for people here that do not know you, I ask that you would help us to open our arms to what you did at the cross. In defeating death. For those of us that know you, I ask, Lord, that you would just help us to remember that it is your gift that we get to accept. Oh, I thank you. Thank you, and I thank you, and I thank you again, because you are the generous gift giver. You bore the cost for us. Amen.